0: Uh, My name is Pastor James, and it's uh, it's great to be with you today. Well, at this time, uh, I want to direct your attention to the book of 1 Peter. So grab your Bible if you have it with you, uh, or feel free to pull up your smartphone. Uh, I really think that you're going to want your Bible today, a copy of God's Word today. Um, We're dealing a lot and kind of jumping back and forth in the text. And so just for context sake, um, I encourage you, even if you don't typically make a habit of this, uh, to get a copy of God's Word uh, for today. And as you're doing that, uh, let me set the stage for us here. Uh, you, you know this if you've been with us through the duration of this series. But 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, who was a personal friend and one of the closest disciples of Jesus. And it was written to first century Christians To help them to to navigate life amidst the persecution, the the trials and trouble that they faced. It was written to encourage believers to stand firm in the faith. We also see one of the the primary ways uh, that Peter refers to these Christians and followers of Jesus is that of exiles. It's actually a, a theme that continues throughout this letter. And Peter's point in doing so is to emphasize the reality that this world is not our home. That in Christ, we are not merely citizens of Korea, or the United States, or or Canada, or or China, or the Philippines, or wherever you may be from. We are ultimately citizens of the kingdom of God, which is the greatest privilege in the world. But it also has a lot of significant implications. For example, being a citizen of the kingdom of God means that your guiding values for for meaning and purpose in this life are not set by the world, but by the maker, by the creator of this world. It also means that we have a new perspective, a new focus, and new realities than everyone else different realities than everyone else and what we're going to see today in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 through chapter 2 verse 3 is Peter speak to and remind us of one of those realities namely the supernatural reality of being a Christian and with that, we're going to see him call us to live as new people in light of that new reality. I want to say this quickly as well before we jump into the text. One of the things that's worth mentioning about Peter is that his writing style is very fluid. It's very free, particularly in comparison to someone like the Apostle Paul, who wrote in a much more sort of systematic or a much more organized way. And so, what we see throughout this letter is Peter sort of weave in and out between the gospel and who God is and its implication. He'll say, Here is all God is for us in Jesus, then there's implication, and then here's who God is for us in Jesus, and implication, and back and forth, over and over and over again, weaving that's definitely going to be true of our passage here today. It could be a little bit confusing as we go through it. So in an attempt to make it a bit more clear, uh, what I want to show you is three, what we'll call threads, three threads of theological and practical truths that are sort of really beautifully woven together in this passage. And again, for clarity's sake, what we're going to do is sort of untie these three threads, if you will, in order to look at each one of them individually, one at a time, and closely. And so let's talk about the first thread of our passage, and then we're going to read our first verse. But the first thread that we see in this text today, number one, is the supernatural reality of the new birth. The supernatural reality of the new birth. Look with me starting at verse 22. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What we see Peter doing in our text here is, once again, returning to the theme of being born again. He's previously talked about this in chapter 1, verse 3. We study that together, Preach a sermon on it. You can go back and listen. I encourage you to do that. But now, at the end of chapter 1, he comes back to this theme. And really, everything in this section of Scripture that we're looking at today emanates from here. This is the heartbeat of this passage. So let's start with the first part of that text. Again, you see on the screen, Peter says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Let's pause there. So what does he mean by that? What is Peter talking about there? Well, on on the one hand, Peter could be talking about uh, walking in God's ways, obedience, uh, obedience to the truth. And, And the reality that walking in God's ways brings purity into your life. And that's certainly true, right? Other places in the scriptures affirm that. But I actually don't believe that's what Peter is referring to here. So then, what, what is this? Well, given the context, I think he's talking about what happens to a person when you trust in Jesus. You see, this, this text here actually hinges on what Peter means by the truth. What does he mean by the truth? What is the truth, in other words, that Peter wants us to be obedient to? Well, again, look at the context. Hopefully, as I asked you, you have your Bibles open. Because the context tells us that the truth is the word of God. That's the end of verse 23. You can look at it there. We don't have it on the screen. So it's clear that the, tr- the truth that Peter has in mind here is the word of God. And then Peter goes on to describe the word of God at the end of verse 25. He calls it what? The good news or the gospel. You see that? So if you put that together, taking this in context, very important that we approach the scriptures this way then obeying the truth is obeying the gospel. Obeying the truth here is obeying the gospel, which means what? Well, it simply means believing in Jesus and surrendering to Jesus. That's what Peter is getting at here. And this isn't new. This is actually a pattern for Peter Because he actually uses the the same language in chapter 4, verse 17. Look at that with me. He He says this. He actually asks a question. He says, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey, what? The gospel of God. Interesting, right? Because this means that Peter saw the gospel, the call to believe in Jesus as something to be obeyed. And actually, the Apostle Paul even speaks this way as well. Like in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, he speaks of those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So there it is again. So try to get this with me this morning. This means, in the New Testament... That the gospel is actually seen as as a summons, let's call it that, a summons of the king. It's a call to turn from a life with ourselves in the center to a life of surrender where we live with Jesus in the center for our deepest joy and his greatest glory. And so the gospel, I think this is important, the gospel then is not just an invitation. It's actually a summons as well. It's something we obey. And what Peter says here in our text, going back to uh, verse 22, is that when we obey the gospel, when we trust Jesus, what happens? He says, our souls are purified. Or we could say, we are born again. We're born again. That's what Peter is talking about here and what he's been talking about from the very beginning of his letter. By your obedience to the truth, by believing in Jesus Christ, your soul is purified. That's what sets the course for the rest of this passage. So then with that, let's keep going. Now we can keep going. If you skip to halfway through verse 23... As I said, Peter comes back to this topic of being born again. He says, since you have been born again, there's the language there, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Let's pause there for a moment, because this is an incredibly important verse. We've already spent some some time unpacking what it means to be or what it meant to be born again earlier in chapter 1. So I'm not going to go through that all. I'm not going to cover all that again today. But what we do know, I guess we'll just keep it at this, is that the language of being born again, it originates with Jesus himself in John chapter 3 and his conversation with Nicodemus, who was a religious leader who wanted to get into the kingdom of God. He wanted to inherit the kingdom of God. So we ask Jesus, what do I have to do, to do to get that, to obtain that? And Jesus tells him, if you want that, you must be born again. So this is, this is language, being born again. It's language of conversion. That in Jesus, we are born again into a new set of realities. A brand new set of realities. We're born into this. We're born into new forgiveness, from God, a new relationship with God, a new family of God, new hope in God, new peace with God, new grace from God, new promises to cling to, and a new future with God. And this is not, this is not just a a theological reality, but But it's an actual change in the core of our being that is brought about through a living trust in Jesus. And here, Peter is telling us how that new birth is being brought about. It's so crucial that you and I see this, all right? He specifically wants us to see how it is brought about, this this new birth, this being born again. So so you see that reference there to to seed? He says, you've been born again. How? Well, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. That reference there uh, to a seed or of a seed has in mind the process of conception. He's alluding to the fact that earthly parents... Men and women, they conceive life, but that life is perishable, mortal, temporary. They, in other words, create life that will pass away. But in contrast, through faith in Jesus, God conceives of a new life. A new life that is eternal, imperishable, and not temporary. So believers then are are born again, not by natural seed that leads to a temporary life and to temporary things, but by an imperishable seed that leads to forever life. It's absolutely incredible. And the seed that God uses to create or bring about this new life in, in spiritually dead, unbelieving hearts, what is it? He says, it's the word of God. That's what Peter says. You've been born again. How? Look at the text. Through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God. It's living because it has power to give new life. And it's abiding because the life that it creates, it remains forever. It stays And to support this idea of of comparing and contrasting the temporary and eternal, the perishable and imperishable, Peter quotes what he does here. He quotes Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. He says this in verse 24 of our text. He says, For all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So follow Peter's argument here. He's creating a contrast between the fragile and temporary nature of human life with the word of God. So he says that human life is like grass. It flourishes and it flowers beautifully for a season, for a minute, for a short time. But then it's gone and it is forgotten. He's saying life will come and go. All our stuff here, it will come and go. Kings will come and go. Their kingdoms will come and go if they're of this world. And to the Christians that Peter is speaking to here in the first century, he's encouraging them by telling them here. The Roman Empire, it will come and go too, just like flowering grass. The persecution, the trials that you face, the hardships, all of it will fade away. But you know what? The Word of God is not like that. Be encouraged. The Word of God is not like that. This new life that the Word of God creates... It lasts forever. And what is this word of God that lasts? Again, we said it just a few minutes ago. It's the end of verse 25. He says this, And this word, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So follow again what Peter is saying here. He says, Believers are born again to a new life. How? through the living and abiding word of God, which is what? He tells us here. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the way, uh, the, the, the way that God brings about the supernatural new birth in the heart of dead, unbelieving people, spiritually speaking, is by the gospel of Jesus that's how God does it. The gospel goes out. It's spread like seed. The Holy Spirit infuses that seed with life, and then it lands. When it lands, it gives new birth to an individual from the inside out. And what is this seed or that's being cast out? What is this gospel good news I'm glad you asked. I'm always happy to remind you what the gospel is. It's the victory report that Jesus came to redeem this broken world and he has done so by his very life, death, and resurrection. It's the reality that when Jesus died, he took the the very wrath of God for the penalty of your and my sins on the cross. It's the truth that three days later, he resurrected from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And that because Jesus has done all of this, God has made, the Father has made this Jesus both Lord and Savior. This is the gospel, the hope for the world. It's the life-saving and life changing message of grace received through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter, again, he calls this gospel a seed. And this seed, this good news, brings new life when it is faithfully proclaimed and shared. It doesn't matter who is delivering it, It doesn't matter who is scattering this good news, this gospel seed. What matters is the power of the seed. And he says, the seed is imperishable in its power. It's living because it gives new life. And it is abiding because the life it creates, it sustains. And like a seed... When the Holy Spirit plants itself in the human heart, it creates new life. But not just life for the here and now. Life that lasts forever. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's a miracle. That's a, a total miracle. So do you feel the weight do you feel the weight today of what God does to save people? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you need to know this. You are a miracle of God. You are not natural. You are supernatural. And that's what Peter tells us here. That's the first thread. Well, the second thread that we see here Uh, is the new birth goes on to affect not just ourselves, but also our relationships. Also our relationships. Thread two is new birth relationships. Notice here how Peter draws a connection between how these new birth realities goes on to affect our Relationships. It's obvious that the new birth is leading us somewhere, in some direction. And in this case, he describes how the the new birth leads us to a sincere brotherly love. Look again at verse 22. Once again, he said, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's the new birth, for, meaning... The new birth was for something. What was it for? He says, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Isn't that interesting? He's saying that God brought about, through Jesus, God, through Jesus, brought about this new birth for a reason. And there are so many but here, Peter emphasizes it's for it's for us to create and cultivate new relationships with others who have been born again. And then Peter kind of pauses. I told you he weaves in and out. Pauses in verse twenty three to twenty five to again talk about the new birth, but then he comes back to this thought. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, look at this, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So it's almost as if Peter began verse 22 by saying, uh, love one another earnestly and sincerely from the heart. And then how do we do that? We'll skip over a few verses to chapter 2, verse 1, by putting away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. See how he does that there? Well, with that, then, I want to draw two observations here. First, notice how he calls this love brotherly love. Brotherly love. And in the Greek language, this is closer to saying, Uh, family love. Family love. Certainly sisters are included here on this as well. It's family love. And so what Peter is saying is that the new birth creates within us a family love among those who are born again. Yes, we are to love all people. Okay, Other places in the scriptures tell us that. But here, Peter is speaking particularly about the way that we are supposed to love other followers of Jesus. How? As a family. Love them as family. See, when you and I were born again to this living hope, we were born into God's family. And therefore, being in a relationship with Jesus, it is not an individual matter. Yes, it is personal, but it's not private. Our faith is not meant to be private. And so you might say the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation, but within a family. And this family, we know, is the church. The church. Our new birth results in new relationships with others who are also born again. And then the second observation I want us to take note of here is is notice how the new birth not only creates new relationships, but also new kinds of relationships. Peter says believers are to love one another sincerely, sincerely. And this is not about uh, having warm and fuzzy feelings towards one another, okay? Okay. This is talking about the attitude of our heart towards one another. And then Peter lists concrete ways of relating to one another that honors God and builds others up. And that includes, what does he say? It includes putting away certain things. Laying down certain things. And that's the list that he gives in verse 1 there of chapter 2. That we must put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Why? Because these attitudes and words of the heart are are poison to relationships and community and to family. They're poison. They're actually the antithesis of love. And so Peter is essentially saying here, you want to know what love is? You want to know what love looks like? Love looks like putting these things aside. It's pretty simple, really. New relational realities with God should lead to new relational realities with others who are born again. But even though that's true, even so, There are sinful attitudes and actions in us that can, the flesh, that can and will stunt our growth individually and corporately. And so Peter says, those things need to go. Not just from some of us, but from each and every one of us who belongs to the body. These things must go. All of us need to put away malice, put away anything that even smells of evil. We need to put away words and attitudes that bring others down or seek harm. We need to put away any sense of superiority. We need to take off all deceit or any misrepresentation of the truth. We need to put away gossip, hypocrisy, because all of that destroys families. Peter also mentions envy here, which is resentment with what others have, but with things that we want. Or slander, which crumbles and ruins people's reputations. And as we put away, put down, lay aside those things, let's follow the Apostle Paul's advice to us in Ephesians 4 29, when he says this. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Listen, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That should be our aim. That our speech and attitude towards one another would have the goal of building each other up. Let's strive then to be those people, because that is what Jesus' church is meant to do and be. And what person, what person wouldn't want to be part of a family made up of individuals with that direction and aim? Jesus' church is a family of born-again believers who belong to one another and who, we are in exile with. So let's be sure we are being a family and building each other up always. Always. Then finally, the third thread that we see in our passage, the new birth not only creates new internal realities within us that manifest in new relational realities, but the supernatural new birth also creates new desires, new desires, new birth desires. That's the third thread that we see in this section of Scripture. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Peter says, Like newborn infants long, or that word, another good word there is crave. Like newborn infants long or crave for for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So let's talk about this. Uh, by calling believers newborns here, Peter is, is not saying that they are immature baby Christians. Okay? Other passages use this same metaphor in that way, but that's not here. Instead, Peter's focus is on describing what born again people should desire. And long for. And what is that? Well, he says, pure spiritual milk. Okay? And it's not that followers of Jesus were out kind of looking for actual, tangible, physical, like a special kind of milk. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's continuing the metaphor here. This is a metaphor of being born, being born into a new family. And since he was just talking about the life giving nature of the Word of God, It's natural to see the pure spiritual milk as God's word as well. So what he's saying here, ultimately, is that the word of God creates life. It causes the new birth. And then here we're seeing the word of God, it nurtures life as well. It nurtures life as well. And certainly, this is a general reference to to all of the scriptures, but especially again the gospel and so peter says born again people should long crave the gospel the way that a baby craves milk let me let me ask you here today have you ever seen a hungry baby It's usually not a cute and cuddly and peaceful scene, right? It's usually fussing and hysterical yelling, almost like they think they're convinced they're going to die, right? There's screaming, there's desperation, there's waking you up at all hours of the day, three o'clock in the morning, whatever. And that's Peter's language here. This longing, craving of an infant is our example for how we should desire the word of God. That's why Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, says this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, which, by the way, we have in the scriptures, We have his words. And therefore, for us to grow and flourish, for us to grow up into salvation, we must feed and trust and enjoy and embrace by faith God's word. It's interesting here that Peter tells us to crave it. Crave the word. Long for it. He doesn't say, wait until you feel like longing, right? He says, no, just long for it. It's a command. He's saying, cultivate a longing for the gospel in your life. Immerse your heart in God's word until you long for it. So when you wake up in the morning, think, I need to, immerse myself in God's word, and in the gospel, and in his love for me. I, wanna, I want his voice to be first and, and loudest in my, his voice to be first and loudest in shaping my life today. When you make decisions for your life, think, what does God's word have for me? When you're suffering, when you're going through a trial, think, Which words should I hold fast to 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 anchor my hope in him? And pray to God that you would realize your absolute need for his word. Your absolute need for the gospel. By longing for the pure spiritual word. We grow up into salvation as we are fed and we're nourished by it. Namely, as we embrace the word by faith and take God at his word. And as we grow up and mature, as we feed on the word, we become more and more and more who God has created us to be. So here's what I know. Here's what I know. When there has been a real birth, there will be a real craving for the word. But that's also something that we need to cultivate and steward as well. And if that's not there at all, if there's no longing, if there's no craving, for the word and to know the gospel and to know God, it does cause into question the state of that person. If that's you, you need to take the time to deeply reflect on why that is. But this is why we, we, we take teaching and preaching so seriously here as a gathering. It's why we believe strongly in gospel-centered teaching because it's by the word of God and the gospel that you and I grow. And so as as a pastor, a person who who has the the privilege, the the honor, the absolute privilege of being the the primary teacher here at this gathering, I want to stay very closely to the word of God because I very much care about your growth and maturation and your deepest joy. And through my weaknesses and limitations, as much as I'm able, as much as possible, I want to say significant things for your life. But the only way for me to do that is to stay close to the word and to just give you, to just hand over to you what God says. And then from there, all I can do, all I can do is pray, is pray that all of you see and feel the magnitude of who God is, what he said, and what he has done in the gospel. Because when you do, when you do, I promise, I believe that you will begin to develop and crave a greater appetite to know this God and all that he is for you in Jesus. And so that's what I'm committed to do here, and I believe our other leaders as well. I'm not trying to do anything fancy up here. Not trying to figure out what people might think they need or even what might entertain you. I'm just trying to bring you the word of God to open it up. Most of the time work through a book of the Bible verse by verse believing that whether you know it or not or think it or not you need this. And it is relevant, always it is relevant for your life. That these words and truths, the gospel, it's what you need to live and it's all that you need. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Again, when you see that, when you get that, when you see him for who he is, It will cultivate a deeper longing for more of the word and more of these relationships that Peter is talking about here. That's why he says, when he concludes his thought here in verse 3, it's why he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is what motivates us. Tasting that the Lord is good. Is good. And so let me close today by asking you Have you? Have you? Have you tasted that He is, he is filled with love? That He is incomparable? That He is unceasing in mercy, lavish in grace? Have you tasted and seen that he's he's always there? That no one could ever take you out of his hand? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? If not, that begins with the new birth. And you can begin that journey today through faith in Christ. And if you have tasted before, but it's been a while... You need to ask yourself, even now, right now, why that is. Don't delay. These words from Peter in verse 3 actually come directly from Psalm 34, 8, which says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And do you know, do you know what that psalm is all about? It won't surprise you if you've been listening the last several weeks about what this whole letter of 1 Peter is about. You know what Psalm 34 is about? It's all about how God delivers his people from their sufferings. And so what Peter is saying is one of the ways, perhaps the primary way that we persevere through our trials, our hardships, our struggles, and pain is by tasting, by seeing, by knowing that the Lord is good over and over and over again. So church family, maybe someone new to this gathering, checking out for the first time maybe, if you don't know Christ today, ask yourself, Ask this question. Have I tasted and seen that the Lord is good? There's no more important question for you to ask yourself today. Does your heart long for Jesus more than anything else? Does your heart crave the good news of the gospel more than anything else? The supernatural reality of the new birth creates new changes in our lives, new relationships, new desires. But the main change, the main change is that we taste that the Lord is good. And that's a reality that lasts forever. So take heart and stand firm. Let me pray for you.